Well, good morning, Hillcrest, and let me uh, take this opportunity to wish everybody a happy new year. I said happy new year. It's good to be back with you and have the opportunity to give you a festive New Year's greetings myself. I appreciate Dustin Scott filling in for us last week as we took a few days off and bringing a great and strong New Year's Day message, and I hope that uh, you've had a wonderful holiday season, and uh, we're now in the midst of uh, 2023, which is kind of hard to believe. Somebody asked me just a couple of days ago, did you make any New Year's resolutions? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I did. I don't call them resolutions. I call them goals. Amen. Sounds a little more serious. And he looked at me and he said, how many of them have you broken? And I said, none. And he said, really? And I said, really? But I do have to tell you that's because I haven't started yet. Amen. Uh, because most, most of my New Year's goals have to do with two things, exercise and food, neither of which I'm very good at. And so uh, this is the week, though, I promise, uh, where we get after a few uh, noble things in our lives, try to get our lives back in some semblance of physical shape. I'm excited to be with you today. We continue in our series through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to take your Bible or power it up to Matthew chapter 2. Once again, this morning, it's on page 758 in your pew Bible. If you need one, there's one in the rack <clears throat> in front of you. So join us in the first gospel as we speak for a few minutes today on the subject of dreams, prophecies, and a family on the run. I saw a movie recently called No Escape. It's with Owen Wilson, and it's got a great plot. It's an action movie, and he's taking his young family of four from Austin, Texas in the United States to a country in Southeast Asia where he's going for a job relocation. He's an engineer, and in this southeastern Asian country, he's going to work on water filtration systems with a major American corporation. And they get there, and of course, his family's going through a little bit of separation anxiety no sooner than they get there. And they find that there is some trouble in the government, and they're in the midst of a coup d'etat, where rebel forces overthrow the existing government and make it their mission in life to root out all the foreign nationals living or visiting in the country in order to take their life. And so you can imagine they get caught up in the middle of this and they're constantly on the run for their life trying to find a way out as they move from one hiding place to another under the cover of darkness uh, until near the end of the movie, they work very difficult, uh, in difficult ways to commandeer a boat to get on a river in order to go four or five miles downstream where the bordering country is Vietnam. And if they can cross that border, they can receive asylum and find a place that's welcoming and one that provides safety to them. High suspense, high drama, lots of action. Life is on the line. You know, you don't have to go to Hollywood to get a storyline like that. You can open the Bible and find it sometimes. That's exactly what we find here at the end of Matthew chapter 2, a story about another family on the run. It's a story that's filled with all kinds of things, dreams, prophecies, intrigue, threatening uh, uh, insults, murder, lots of danger. This is um, kind of an often overlooked story. 
In fact, you only find this story in the Gospel of Matthew. Out of all four Gospel accounts, it's only found right here. But there's really quite a lot to it. So we don't want to gloss over it. It's unimportant. We want to take a full look at it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Let's take a look at the story as we stand and honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Everybody ready to read? Would you say Amen. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Dreams, prophecies, and a family on the run. This is God's word, and all God's people said, Father... Would you grace us with your presence today? Fill us with your spirit. Guide us by your spirit through these important words from the eternal word of the living God. May it educate us, inspire us, even transform us that we might live in ways that are contagious in the larger community and world in which we live. For the time is short and people are desperate for Christ. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, church family. Please be seated. I I think this is a a very compelling passage and an important passage because it reminds us that even before Jesus was old enough to coherently speak, worldly powers, demonic powers were out to get him. Isn't that right? I mean, the devil was on the loose. The devil was on the move through demonic human agencies in order to wipe out the Christ child even before he had barely had the opportunity to get going with his life. 
But another thing that's obvious is that not only was the devil at work, God was at work. Our Lord was on the move. God had a plan for the life of his only begotten son. And can I make a statement right out of the gate this morning? God's plan trumps the devil's plan every time. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, we can trust the sovereign plan of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, don't forget that Matthew is a Jew. And Matthew's writing to his initial audience, which was a fundamentally Jewish audience. And that's in large part why you got all these prophecies in there. Three of them in this passage of Scripture. That makes five that we've read about, fulfilled Old Testament Scriptures, uh, since the beginning of Gospels of Matthew. And that's because Matthew is making a compelling case. He's making an argument to his principal Jewish audience that this is the guy. This Jesus is the man. He's the one that the prophets pointed to, to be the anointed one of God, to bring salvation and to bring deliverance. And so what Matthew's on a mission to do is to point out the true identity of who this Jesus of Nazareth actually is as the promised Messiah of God. But then this passage is also important because of what it teaches us not only about the identity of Jesus, but because of what it teaches us about the mission of Jesus as well. That's kind of the angle that I want to approach it from this morning. What does this tell us about what Christ, not only who Christ is, but about what Christ came to do? The first aspect of his mission that we see here is that Christ came to deliver people from bondage. He came to deliver us from bondage. And that's made very clear by the association that we have in this first prophecy to Egypt itself, which we know is a very prominent Old Testament theme because it was in Egypt that the entire nation of Israel found themselves collectively in what? Say it out loud. In bondage, that's right, in slavery to Pharaoh. It hadn't been very long since the wise men had scooted away from their visit to the young Jesus. They, they, they too were warned. You got dreams going on all over the place. So the wise men were warned in a dream that they needed to get out of town because things were about to get hot. Go back to your own country, and they did. And no sooner had they left than Joseph now hears from the Lord, also in a dream, again in a dream. God had already communicated to him a couple of times in dreams, and here he does it again. And God tells him the same thing he told the wise man. You need to pack up and you need to move out. Uh, the English Standard Version uses the word flee. And that's a Greek word from which we, from which we get our English word fugitive. Fugitive. How many of y'all seen that movie with Harrison Ford? That's one that you could watch a hundred times and it still never gets old. God tells Joseph, become a fugitive. You need to flee. You need to get out. You need to run because life is on the line. The reason for that had everything to do with Herod and his out-of-control paranoia. He's threatened by the birth of this rival king that he literally knows not hardly anything about. The wise men were told by Herod, come back and give me a report and tell me where he is so I can come and worship him, but they know better than that. So they ignore the instruction to report back to Herod. And Herod, in the absence of specific information, opts for a nuclear solution. I don't know where he is, but I'm going to find him anyway. And the nuclear solution is to just eradicate 
all the young boys in Bethlehem and in the larger region of Judea. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that we've estimated that Jesus is somewhere probably between 12 and 18 months old by the time of this story, give or take a few months. And so to give himself some cushion, Herod somehow had figured out a general idea about how old the boy is, and so he gives himself a little cushion, said if they're out there two and under, put them to death by the sword. And that way we should be sure to catch the one that's a threat to my kingdom. So God speaks to Joseph in a dream and says you need to get out of Israel, get out of Judea. And he points him in the direction of Egypt, about 100 or so miles to the southwest. Egypt would be a safe place for them. That's the first reason God takes them to Egypt and not someplace else. By this time, there's a pretty large Jewish contingency in the land of Egypt, especially in the city of Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great some centuries before. There in Alexandria, the Roman historian Josephus estimates that there could have been as many as a million Jews living in the city of Alexandria alone. So they would have found camaraderie there in Egypt by the time of Jesus' young life. Uh, and they could have been supported for a good while. Aren't you thankful for the generosity of the wise men? They didn't give them a tip. They gave them very valuable gifts, extravagant gifts in worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords, gifts that could have been liquidated. And I believe it was based on those gifts that the Joseph family could have set up housekeeping in Egypt for a pretty good time well into the future. They'd have had plenty to live on by the providence of God and the generosity of the wise men. So the Joseph family and I got their marching orders in hand, and with the marching orders in hand, given the grave danger involved, Matthew tells us they fled, they became fugitives, and they did it by night, which makes sense strategically. They left, literally, under the cover of darkness. And so Egypt would have been a safe place. But a more significant reason, I think, that God led them to Egypt was so that at some point, he could bring them up out of Egypt in order to fulfill what the Old Testament prophets had said about the Messiah. Out of Egypt, I will bring my son. That's what it says in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt. So God took them in fundamentally so that he could bring them out. Now, this prophecy is a direct quotation from the Old Testament book of Hosea, Hosea 11.1, to be precise. And it's another piece of divine evidence that this was indeed the promised Messiah of God. This is Matthew's way of pointing out this Jesus is the one. Now, when Hosea first made that statement, as you read your Old Testament, when you get to Hosea and you read that statement, you know that he's principally, in his immediate context, talking about the nation of Israel. That's the son. Out of Egypt, I brought my son, my collective son, my people. And the event that he's referring to in his immediate context is the Exodus. So as it's given originally in Hosea, this becomes a historical statement about what God had done delivering his people from 400 years of Egypt. Egyptian <coughs> slavery under the bondage to the pharaohs. 
And what Matthew does in taking this passage of Scripture and pointing this out is to show us something, not only about who Jesus is, but about what Jesus came to do. His point is simply this. Just as Israel, as God's son, was brought out of Egypt to become his chosen people, now Jesus, as God's son, is being brought out of Egypt to be his chosen Messiah. Do you see the connection there? Israel was the son of God brought out to live as God's chosen. Jesus was the son of God brought out of Egypt to be God's chosen deliverer. God provided salvation to his people then by bringing them out of Egypt. God provides salvation now by bringing this messianic deliverer out of Egypt, his savior out of Egypt. In both cases, the escape from Egypt signals that God has the power and that God has the ability to save his people. And by making that connection, this is Matthew's way of saying, look at this man. This is the man. This is the Savior we've been waiting for. And just as God delivered his chosen people from bondage, just as God delivered his only begotten son from bondage, God has the power through that only begotten son to deliver all God's children from a situation of bondage that comes as a result of sins. That makes sense? Say amen. I mean, we're plowing close to the corn this morning. So listen up and listen good because the story doesn't end there. Christ came to deliver us from bondage, but in light of that, Matthew also shows us second how Christ came to restore us from exile. To deliver us from bondage, yes, but to restore us from spiritual exile. Just after we're informed that Herod called for the life of all these infant boys, Matthew then goes to a second prophecy that was fulfilled in, in, in the event of Jesus flight to Egypt. It's recorded in verses 17 and 18. Check it out with me one more time. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now remember you got the context of this mass slaughter of young boys, infanticide going on in the land of Israel. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now that, brothers and sisters, is a quotation right out of Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's a reference to another act of brutality that took place during the time of the prophet Jeremiah in its original context, all this weeping and wailing for these children, in its original context, referred uh, to an event in which Babylon had come in to Egypt. This is one of the high watermarks of the Old Testament. And something that we've mentioned a lot, really, in the past several weeks here at Hillcrest as we've look at, looked at some of the Old Testament prophecies, because many of them come in the context of what's known as the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian Captivity. Uh, Babylon had a king named Nebuchadnezzar, their most famous king, 586 B.C., the most important 
military conquest in the Old Testament was the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., a few hundred years, obviously, before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They swept in, these bloodthirsty Babylonians, and uh, totally destroyed Jerusalem, leveled it to the ground, burned it with fire, sowed it with salt, killing many of the people in the process. But even more people than they killed, they just captured. And they carted them away back to the land of Babylon and surrounding areas in order to live a life of subservience and a life of slavery to the people of Babylon. And that period of time in the nation of Israel is known as the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian captivity. Now, as Jeremiah reflects on that, he uses two proper nouns here that you probably noticed. And they're both important. The first proper noun that he uses is the town of Ramah. Ramah, uh, located just five miles north of Jerusalem. Kind of a bedroom community for the city of Jerusalem. In fact, when you look at the usage of Ramah throughout the Old Testament literature, really it's only two points of notoriety is that one, it was the birthplace and hometown of the prophet, anybody know Box of Snickers on the line here. It's the birthplace of Samuel. Samuel, who was the one who anointed David as king. And even after Samuel had left to serve in the court of Eli, he eventually went back to make Ramah his hometown. But the second reason that we know Ramah is because of its connection to the Babylonian exile. Ramah served as a place, what we might call a staging area, where many of these captured Jews during the sacking of Jerusalem were carted off to, organized, and then systematically taken away. It was a staging area for this time of exile. And you can imagine the cries and the anguish as these families are herded together and then systematically separated. Husbands separated from wives to go two different places. Children ripped from the arms of their mothers to go only God knows where. You can imagine the emotional exhaustion as they would be separated, never to see one another again. Kind of conjures up 20th century images of the Holocaust. Many of you lived through that period of time where in various places throughout Europe, Jewish families were taken to these staging areas where they could be assembled and then loaded onto these cattle cars on a railway system to be carted off to concentration camps all over Europe. And the heartbreak and the agony was just unimaginable agony. So that's the first of the proper noun, Ramah. Lots of weeping, lots of wailing because of what it had stood for. The second proper noun is Rachel, who's also mentioned here, Ramah and Rachel. Rachel, of course, was one of the two wives of Jacob, whose name was also what? He was Jacob, and his name was changed to what? Israel, that's right. And so Rachel becomes a mother figure for the whole nation, and that's why her name is mentioned here. Rachel weeping for her children, because Jacob had fathered the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so she's a mother figure, and she's grieving 
over the loss of her children. She represents every Jewish mother at that time, the time of Jeremiah, who grieved over the exile and the loss of her children and family members. But here's the thing. Matthew imports her into the first century and says she's also emblematic and representative of the Bethlehem mothers of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ who are weeping and wailing over the fact that Herod's soldiers are coming in and lifting these children to and under from the loving arms of their mother and systematically putting them to death. Well, you can't even imagine about that. I mean, this kind of thing you read about in stories. Nobody here's ever had to live that. An official coming in, ripping your children out of your arms and putting them to death, probably right in front of your very eyes. It's a desperate thing. And so in both of these events, you've got high levels of grief going on. And in the midst of all this grief, what you need to notice is not the grief so much as it is the hope. Because in the middle of all this grief, we're not left without hope. And I'd imagine there's some people in the room today grieving about something. I mean, we've done several funerals. I was out of town the last week of the month, and it seemed like I kept getting alerted about somebody that had passed away and died. We've done several funerals in the last several days. Maybe you're going through grief because of another kind of loss. Here's the thing, in the midst of grief, and the grief is very real, if you're walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're never left without hope. I have it written in the flyleaf of my Bible. Just because you're at the end of your rope never means, never means that you have to be at the end of your hope because you're not with Christ. Israel was exiled to Babylon, yes. Jesus and his family were exiled to Egypt. Yes, here's the good news. Only for a little while. Only for a little while. There's an every time where God was not constantly at work. God had not forgotten them. Don't you remember what Jeremiah had said alongside this statement about weeping and wailing? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to what? Prosper you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. <clears throat> In fact, if you go to Jeremiah 31, the chapter where this prophecy is originally mentioned, in the very next verse, verse 16 of Jeremiah 31, amidst all this weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, mourning because of all this separation, in the very next verse, Jeremiah provides a ray of sunshine which cuts through an otherwise gloomy sky. Look what he says in verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice. In fact, let's just read this out loud together because this is too good. Because we tend to get focused on the gloom and we tend to get focused on the darkness and we get to focus most of the time on what's painful to us. And Jeremiah, after giving us that very real picture, and it was real, he says, now here's the proper spiritual perspective. Verse 16 and 17, let's read it, everybody together, together. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. 
they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Man, if you've got that in your notes this morning, circle those two phrases. They will return. There is hope. Somebody say amen this morning. That's the ray of sunshine in the midst of gloom. And I don't care what you're going through this morning. I'm telling you, if you know the Lord, there is sunshine amidst the gloom. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Amen. So you just have to look for it, and you have to see it, because there's never a time where God, though he may seem still, he is never still. Where he may seem silent, he never is. God is not silent. There will be a return, because there is hope. And in just a few years, that's exactly what happened. It happened with Israel, and it's exactly what happened with the Joseph family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. There was exile, but God was at work, and God brought them back. God restored them to the land after a time in exile. And as we'll see here in just a minute, Jesus was restored to his land uh, after a time in Egypt. But there's a broader application too. As Israel was restored from their captivity to Babylon, as Jesus was restored from his captivity to Egypt, so because of Christ, believers can be restored from their captivity to sin and Satan. I'm telling you, life can deal you a bitter blow, hard blows, catastrophic blows sometimes. I was minding my own business last Monday night, watching what I thought was a harmless football game, Monday night football. I've been watching Monday night football since the days of Howard Cosell. <laughs> and I had a book in my hand, largely because I am still a nerd at 58, 59. And so I read, I kind of go back and forth between the ball game. Thank God for instant replay. If I miss it, I can watch it again. And all of a sudden, everything stopped. Did y'all see that? Everything stopped. I watched the replay. I didn't, I didn't see it happen live. But I saw what happened next. And I couldn't figure it out because it just looked like a normal football play to me. I mean, defensive back, whose name was DeMar Hamlin, came flying across the field, made what appeared to be a routine tackle, stood up, took one step back, grabbed his face mask to adjust it, boom, straight to the ground. Nobody knew it at the time. I kept watching the replay for a head injury. Couldn't tell there was any reason for a head injury. Didn't know what happened. And then when they pulled an ambulance out on the field, I thought, okay, I've never seen an ambulance on the field. I see the flatbed golf cart on the field a lot. I've never seen an ambulance on the field. This guy is having a heart problem. I mean, it's the first thing I thought. Something's gone wrong with his heart. He's had heart block or something. And he was carted off the field. And I mean, what were the players standing all around him weeping and moaning and groaning for this child of a teammate? 24 years old, prime physical condition. And there they were in shock because of the bitterness of that blow. 
to one of their own. But whether they realized it or not, thank God there was hope. There was hope. Man, everybody started praying. You had these otherwise loudmouth pagan broadcasters praying live on national television. Guys that have an opinion about everything when they had hit the wall and didn't know what else to do. And it's amazing to me. They ain't no, there's never an atheist in a foxhole. <laughs> All these guys turning to the Lord, most of them probably didn't give a wit about God up to that point. But when they didn't have any place else to turn, they threw up a Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life in the bar, 911 prayer. God, if you're really real, help our buddy. And thank God he's been brought back from the land of exile. Amen. Those prayers worked. And God brought him back. Why? Because he was never out uh, without hope, even at the end of the rope. See, sin does that to all of us. Sin has a way of snatching us and removing us from the presence of God. Sin takes you into exile. If you don't know Christ, you're in exile right now. You are there. Because sin breaks our fellowship with God. But God has sent a Savior who has the power to bring us back, to has the power to restore us to life, even as we live in a world marked by nothing but death and confusion. Remember the original instruction that the angel gave to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will what? Save his people from their sin. Christ came to deliver us from bondage. Christ came to restore us from exile. But then notice finally Christ came to heal us from hatred. And this requires a little explanation, so hang in there with me for just a couple more minutes. Because in verse 21, Matthew says that Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And then come down to verse 23. And he went and lived <clears throat> in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So that becomes the third prophecy of this passage of Scripture and the fifth prophecy of the larger first two chapters of Matthew fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one is different, though, because you can search all over the Old Testament and you won't find it in the Old Testament. This is one that's not there, at least not in these exact words. Matthew uses the plural prophets. The first one was a singular prophet, Hosea. The second one was a singular prophet, Jeremiah. Now he just simply says, according to the prophets, plural, without naming any of them, which indicates that several, apparently, along the way through the centuries had indicated some kind of messianic connection to the city of Nazareth. Evidently, they were written down somewhere or perhaps simply part of what's known as the Jewish oral tradition, which was a very real thing. But we don't find these specific words recorded as part of the scriptural record per se. What is recorded, however, in the scriptural record is the lowly and the humble nature of the Messiah. That's where the city of Nazareth comes into play. Because we would have expected 
a king of kings to come out of a place like Jerusalem, right? Not out of some one horse town out of the middle of nowhere, but yet the Old Testament prophets do tell us, Matthew 53 being the prominent place, that the one who would be born as the anointed deliverer of the people of God, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected of men. He would be an object of scorn, an object of rebuke, an object of mockery, the butt of jokes. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Which is what always happened to people who came from Nazareth. They were always the butt of jokes. People always rolled their eyes at them. It was just this little one-horse town. Mary and Joseph were originally from Nazareth, which shows you that God has a sense of humor. To call the parents of the Son of God out of a place like Nazareth? And they had moved to Bethlehem. They'd set up house in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. But they didn't go back to Bethlehem. They probably started out for Bethlehem. Here comes another dream. Don't go to Bethlehem. Herod's dead, but his son is reigning, and his son's crazier than he is, or was. Archelaus, more murderous than Herod, if that were even possible. And so God speaks to Joseph in a dream, redirects him about 55 miles north of Jerusalem to Nazareth, this roughneck kind of place, nothing much good ever said about the people who hailed from Nazareth. In fact, you see that reputation clearly expressed in the opening chapter of John's gospel, right? Where Philip had found Jesus, and then Philip went and found Nathanael, wanting to introduce him to Jesus, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I, I taught this passage in John 1 at, at a gathering of our Wednesday night midweek, my first six months here when I was taking the church, my first series on Wednesday night as Pastor Hillcrest was through John. And I had, trying to be funny, I had said, well, let me just say, for our context, that would be like saying, can any good thing come out of Jay? And Melinda Madison, who's now our children's pastor, came up to me and she said, oh, that was a great Bible study. But by the way, I'm from Jay. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to me, quit trying to be a comedian, man. <laughs> Tell them what the scriptures mean. So my apologies to you if you're from Jay. I'm a Tennessee hillbilly, enough said. So this final prophecy mentioned by Matthew is important. Because it's a reference to the scorn and the derision and the out-and-out -out rejection the Messiah was sure to face. That would be the fulfillment of Scripture, particularly Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men all the way to the cross upon which he died, scorned by the world. John says that. He came and to his own people, and his own people received him not. But then there's a divine but. But there's hope to as many as received him.
to them, to those. He'll give the gift of everlasting life, even to those who believe in his name. Thank God when all of us, because of sin, in our own way, mocked, criticized, kept Jesus at stiff arm length, wanted to put Jesus away. The very people Jesus came to save when he first came were the very people that were trying to kill him. They just didn't know it. And yet all of us are like that. We may not have wanted to kill Jesus, but we sure don't want to talk about him. We want to keep him at a distance. We want to put him away. And the good news is Jesus loves us anyway. And he keeps on pursuing us. Sin has put us in bondage. It's exiled us. But it's also blinded us. Because most people still make light of Jesus. And want to get him out of the way. And yet in the cross, that blessed cross, the love of Jesus comes shining through the darkness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what a model he is for us as we deal with so many people in the world who mock us and scorn us because of what we believe. We love them anyway. And we keep ministering the same love that that Lord Jesus continued to minister to us until somehow, some way, we managed to find our way safely back to the love and security of our Father's arms. It's a complicated passage. to make sense this morning? Christ came to deliver us from bondage, to get us out of Egypt, Christ came to restore us from exile, to heal us from hatred. Crucial facts revealed through a bitter blow to an otherwise obedient family. Those kinds of unexpected blows still happen. Sometimes they're relational. Sometimes they're spiritual, sometimes psychological, sometimes financial, amen. I mean, this was the Joseph and Mary family was this young family coming off of the greatest spiritual high any family has ever experienced in the history of the world. They just gave birth to God in flesh. What life experience could be any higher than that? And yet, no sooner had they just gotten accustomed to the thought, they were on the run. And it'll happen to you too. It will. God will test your faith early, and God will test your faith often. And yet, we want to model ourselves after this young family when that bitter blow happens. They trusted God completely. They obeyed God fully, and they did so until the storm finally passed, and it was safe to come home again. God won't always keep you from the storm, but God will always give you hope in the middle of the storm. 
And he has promised to guide you safely through it. What's needed from you is a steady faith in a sovereign God who's always at work and a confidence that truly believes with God in my life and the Spirit guiding me, I can make it through this. Do you really believe it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the moral of the story. It's God's word and all God's people said, amen. That's a good word this morning. Put your hands together and let's praise the Lord today. Amen.